Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 16. We are working our way through the gospel of Matthew in a series called The King Has Come. I did not plan this out wonderfully, otherwise next week we would be at the Easter passage. We will not be, but that's okay. Because frankly, if you can't find the cross and the resurrection throughout the gospels, you're probably preaching it wrong. So we will look at... Easter in depth, Um, and we're going to really jump off of a particular phrase in the next passage. But before we get there, anybody ever seen the the show Mythbusters? Anybody? I'm a huge fan of that show. Lots of fun. If you haven't seen it, they take kind of contemporary myths or ideas or thoughts, and then they test them out, and they show whether they're real or not real as best they can. It's a lot of fun. And one of the, not really a myth, but an idea that they sought to test was the spread of germs by somebody that had, this gets a little gross, so kids pay attention, kids that, uh, people that had like a drippy nose and how much that would spread to others, right? It's okay, you can groan. So it gets worse or better depending on if you're like me or not. They did a show where the host had a little tube installed along the side of his glasses and it came down his nose and it dripped at the rate that a person with a runny nose would drip at. So this is gross, right? So he has his tube and he's got makeup over it so nobody can see it and he does a little dinner party and he's the host. And people come in and he shakes their hands. Oh, and I left out an important part. The liquid that was dripping out of the tube was... What's the word for it? Phosphorescent or fluorescent? That's what it was. It would light up in a black light or an ultraviolet light. Otherwise, you couldn't see it. So as people came in, he greeted them. He put it, You remember when you could touch people? He put a hand on their shoulder and shook their hands. I know he couldn't do that anymore. But he would shake their hands, and they would come in. He would greet them. Some of them, he gave them a hug, and they sat down. This was way before COVID. And he had pitchers of water, and he was serving drinks, and he cut cake and food, and he was serving dishes and passing them around. And at the end of the meal, they brought in the ultraviolet light. And they brought it over the table. And it lit up like a Christmas tree. Every glass, every fork, every spoon, every knife, every napkin, every goblet, every pitcher, every plate, numerous places on the tablecloth, all of it lit up just from one guy wiping his nose and serving things. Then they had about, I think it was six or seven people in attendance. They took the black light to them. And their hands were solid, bright pink, lit up by the ultraviolet light. Their clothing had pink splotches all over. Their faces were covered in bright pink ultraviolet fluid. Gross, right? That's how quickly this, I think the whole thing lasted about 20 to 30 minutes. That's how quickly one person could spread this thing around to all the others. Now, we're kind of living with that. Like that was novel for, I know people are putting their face masks back on. That was kind of, (laughs) that was kind of novel back then. Like, oh yeah, I mean, that's clever and all. And then COVID hit and we thought, wow, we're living in that reality. Now, we have become, to some extent, experts on transmission of diseases and washing our hands and wearing of masks and being careful not to touch multiple surfaces. We've had to do that. 
And we're going to look in our passage this morning at something that should not be spread. Something that easily gets spread that we need to stop the spread of this. And I'm not talking about COVID. Now, I want to be clear. There are many things throughout Matthew that Jesus says should be spread. There are several times that Jesus sends out his disciples to spread the news of the kingdom, to spread the gospel. Matthew ends with the great commission for the disciples and all believers, go spread the good news of the gospel to the world. Certainly there are things that should be spread in the world. But today we need to look at something that should not spread, must not spread. And if we're not careful, I guarantee it will spread. We're going to look at two scenes in Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. One is Jesus with some religious leaders, and then the second scene is Jesus with his disciples. And one depends on the other. And the first one we're going to look at is verses 1 through 4, where the disciples, I'm sorry, rather the religious, this is horrible because like my nose is itching. It's just, just, you know, what's that word where it gets in your head? It's psychosomatic or something. Jesus meets with the religious leaders here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they come to Jesus and they demand a sign. And we'll look at the text in a second, but I want to set up the context, kind of the the situation of what's going on here. I said earlier, we're looking at Matthew and this theme of the king has come. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah all the way from the very first verse, the coming king, through the the history of his ancestry to the Christmas story, and then all throughout Matthew, he is the promised king, the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah for everyone, our Savior, the king has come. And yet throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we often see people that refuse to accept Jesus. Not just like have their doubts, they absolutely refuse and even go against him, persecuting him and his followers. If you remember, in the past couple of weeks, we've looked at a particular passage where Jesus deals with some non-Jewish people, Canaanites, in chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. He has this beautiful interaction, difficult interaction, with this Canaanite woman, a non-Jewish woman, She doesn't believe in the God of the Israel faith, doesn't believe in a coming Messiah, doesn't care about those things, at least culturally she shouldn't have. And yet when she sees Jesus, she declares that he is Lord, son of David. That's the Messiah. And in that passage, Jesus says of this woman, you have great faith. So we've got that, and then a little further down in 1531, we have all these Gentiles. Jesus has done a miracle, and they're all believing in Jesus. There's something different about this guy, something special about him. Yet if we back up to chapter 12, we see some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, declare that Jesus only does what he does because of the devil. They basically say you're a demon, or worse, you're the devil. They refuse to believe in him. And all of this leads up to what we're going to look at on Easter morning next week, which is Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, where Jesus asks his disciples, And I think we all have to ask ourselves, Jesus says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? It's a question we want to dance around, but we really need to look long and hard at it. And so here we are in this passage that leads up to that question. And I want to look at the first four verses here, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees demand a sign. 
It says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. They want proof. They demand a sign. Now, we need to understand what these two groups are all about, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because if we're not familiar with the context or or Jewish tradition, we won't understand how shocking it is that these two groups are doing anything together. The Pharisees we've talked about quite a bit. They wanted to purify Israel from all outside influence. They wanted to return people to the God of the Old Testament, follow the law religiously, and to helpfully help people to follow the law. They added all these extra rules on top just to be sure, to be extra special righteous and religious. Unfortunately, their own rules and laws that were meant to be helpful became a secondary standard. And people had to follow their rules in order to be righteous. Now, they had a certain amount of power or authority in the Jewish community. They were religious experts. They were the judges of righteousness and the standard of righteousness. And they were part of the Sanhedrin, which was about 70 people that ruled over Israel. Now, under Roman occupation, of course, but they were the religious leaders in Israel. So that's the Pharisees. We've talked about them quite a bit. But what about the Sadducees? The Sadducees also wanted to help Israel to continue as a nation. Bless you. But their idea was different. See, the Pharisees said, we don't want anything to do with these foreign ideas and and the Roman concepts and the Roman culture. We don't want any of that. The Sadducees went the other direction. They said, if Israel's going to continue to exist, here's what we need to do. We need to give in. Yes, we can hold on to our Jewish roots. They believed in the Old Testament law, but they said, but some of these new things aren't so bad. And so they would let go of some of their traditions and teachings, and they would give in to Roman culture. They would negotiate with the current culture to keep themselves comfortable and to keep their religion alive. Now, they tended to be more political than religious. They tended to be very wealthy because the Romans kind of liked them. They also were part of the Sanhedrin, along with the Pharisees. Now, think for a second. One group says the best way to maintain our religion is to completely get rid of all foreign influence. And another group says the best way to maintain our religion is to give in to all foreign influence. Can you imagine how these two groups got along? Not at all. In fact, some people have questioned the truthfulness of Matthew's gospel partially on this passage, saying there's no way these two groups would do anything together. They absolutely hated each other. Jesus has a way of bringing people together, doesn't he? Whether it's in salvation or in persecution against him, Jesus does have a way of bringing people together. So here we have these two political and religious rival groups that hated each other working together. I was trying to think of a contemporary illustration of two groups that had to work together. 
They're in kind of an authority position that had completely different ideas on religious and political ideas that, that had to somehow work together and they just hated each other all the time. I couldn't come up with it, but <laughs> I'm sure there's one out there somewhere. So they come to Jesus and what do they ask for? And actually, I think asking is rather polite. They demand. They want to test Jesus. And they test him by asking for a sign. Now, your translation might have tempt. Test, tempt is really about the same thing in the Greek. The goal is to set him up for a failure. They want to prove that Jesus is a fraud. And so they come to him together on a certain day and they say, you do a sign now for us. That's my loose translation. Why? Why do they demand a sign? It's like Jesus hasn't done any miracles up to this point, right? He fed 5,000 people with a a bit of uh, bread and some fish. He fed 4,000 people with a little bit of food. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed people. He made somebody lame from birth walk. He's done all these miracles. And the disciples, or I'm sorry, rather the religious leaders have seen these things over and over and over again. So what's different here? This is this group two groups, exercising their authority and saying, you need to prove to us and you need to do it now on our timetable. They want Jesus to do a miracle in front of them in response to their demand, to prove to them. Now, look at what Jesus says, verses two through three. He says that they can read the signs of the times. They can read the weather. I remember my dad teaching me the old saying. There's probably different versions of it. Red at night, sailor's delight. Red in the morning, sailors take warning. Is that right? Whew, dad was right. Either that or I remembered it correctly. Yeah, and that's basically what he's talking about here. It's an age-old saying that you can, in general, look at the sunset. And if it's red in the night, I don't know why that works, but that it does. And if it's red in the morning, you better be careful. There might be storms. He's saying, look, you guys can look around you at the sky and the weather and make predictions. And yet you're completely missing the most important thing to ever happen in history. What signs was he talking about? Jesus fulfilled multiple prophecies from the Old Testament. Prophecies these men spent their lives studying. Jesus fulfills them. And they ignore it. Jesus does many miracles that proves that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet these men, though they saw it, they refused to believe and ignored it. They saw, but they didn't really see. Ever been in a situation like that? If you're a parent, I think you can identify. But I think we can all identify to some extent. I saw it, but I just didn't really see it. I didn't pay attention And often, and especially in this case, it's because they chose not to believe. And Jesus calls them out. He says, you are a wicked and adulterous generation. These are the religious leaders. And he points a finger and says, you're wicked and adulterous. And in this case, adultery is a spiritual adultery. He's accusing them of idolatry, following after other gods. Their whole point in their mind is, we're trying to worship the one true God. And Jesus says, you're completely missing it. Because they would not accept the truth about him. And they want a sign. And so he says to them, nothing will be given except the sign of Jonah. 
This has already come up, so we know exactly what he's talking about. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40, Jesus says, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he talking about? Resurrection. It's what we're going to celebrate next week on Easter morning. He says, look, you want a sign? I'll give you one more. You want proof of who I am? I'll give you one more. Jesus is going to die, and then he's going to rise from the dead. And what do you think will happen to these religious leaders when that happens? Will they all fall on their face and proclaim your God, and we're not, and we worship you and trust you? Will that sign be enough for them? Surely the resurrection would be enough. No, it's not. You see, there's a couple bad assumptions that are going on here. And I think this is where we need to look at our own hearts and say, in what ways do we do the same thing? When we make demands of God and say, if you would just do this, then I'll believe in you. We're making a couple bad assumptions. The first is that we're assuming a wrong result. We assume that if God proves himself to us, then we'll believe. Well, if we could see the miracles they saw in Jesus' day, then we would believe. You see, here's the thing we learned from Matthew. The people of Jesus' day that saw the miracles, they still didn't believe. The miracles were not enough. The same crowds that would call out, as I said earlier on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just days later will say, crucify him. Declare him to be a criminal, certainly not the Messiah. Crucify him. Pastor Ligon Duncan says, the heart is the great barrier to faith, not the evidence. The heart is the great barrier to faith, not the evidence. And what he's getting at is what we're seeing here is that when our heart already declares Jesus cannot save, it doesn't matter what Jesus does, we will still say Jesus cannot save. The heart is the problem. Miracles can support faith, but they seldom create it. So the first bad assumption is assuming the wrong result, that if we see a miracle, we will believe. But the second bad assumption, I think, is even worse. It assumes the wrong authority. Think about what these Pharisees and Sadducees were saying by demanding this miracle. They believed that they were in a position of authority to judge Jesus the Son of God, the Savior of the world. They're standing there with their arms crossed saying, if you just do this for us now, then we'll believe in you, which we know they wouldn't because he's done these things numerous times and they still haven't believed. But they want him to submit to their authority. Even though Jesus had done many miracles before, he had not done them for the religious leaders. And they want to see submission. These two bad assumptions, making or assuming the wrong result, that a miracle would cause people to believe, and assuming that we have the authority to judge, are very dangerous. They slip in underneath our faith. They infect our faith. They, in the way we talk to others, and the way we teach and we preach, they touch other people and infect their faith, and they're subtle at times. 
And I think that second assumption is probably the most dangerous of the two. That we are in the position to judge Jesus. When that's our starting point, it will undermine everything that comes after. And that's exactly what happens now in the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. If you look at verses 5 through 12, I'm going to walk through this passage quickly and then show how it relates to what Jesus has just said. Matthew chapter 16, uh, we'll look at verses 5 through 7 here. And Jesus is going to warn his disciples to stay away from this toxic faith of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verses 5 through 7, he says, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus has often used this idea of yeast as something that would spread and influence a much larger group. He talked about the kingdom of heaven was like yeast, and it spreads in this world. In multiple places, he uses the illustration of yeast for the effects of sin, that it seems small and insignificant, but it infects and affects so many other people and so many other things. But what's he talking about here? He's just had this interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees where they demand a sign and he says to his disciples and warns them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the disciples say, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Now, on the one hand, I I want to applaud the effort. They're listening to their rabbi. They're trying to apply what he's saying. They're not just ignoring it and walking away. On the other hand, you kind of want to shake them and say, how can you be so dumb? And that's kind of what Jesus says in verse 8. He says, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you still don't understand that I was talking to you about bread? Or how is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? He says, how did you miss this? Now again, what was the most recent miracle that Jesus did outside of the the Canaanite woman and helping her daughter? Remember the most recent public miracle was the feeding of the 4,000. Just the chapter before that, there was another little feeding of over 5,000 people. And so here's the disciples going, hmm, what's our rabbi talking about? Oh, we might run out of food. And Jesus goes, have you learned nothing? If you're with me, you don't have to focus on that. I've got that covered. You need to go deeper. Do you remember the first bad assumption? You see, the disciples saw these miracles. They witnessed them. But is their response to trust in Jesus more in this situation? No. Their response is to figure out what they need to do to fix it. What have we done wrong? How do we fix it? If you look at verses 11 through 12, it says to them, 
How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about, about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is that moment where the disciples go, oh, that's what you're talking about. That's what you mean. Of course. I imagine one or two of them was like, I knew it. That's what I was trying to tell you. I knew it. Jesus repeats his warning, but he clarifies it, that he's not talking about bread. But he says again, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There was something about what the Pharisees and Sadducees believed and taught that could infect the disciples' faith. So what's going on here? First of all, I'm really glad that we have this in Scripture. For me personally, I find it very encouraging because I look at a situation like this with the disciples and I see people who are just as dense and stubborn and stupid as I am and yet God still works through them. Amen? Praise God for that. God uses messed up people. But what exactly is this teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus warns against? These groups did not agree on very much. And it's interesting that they're both included here. We could talk about the Pharisees and being self-righteous and just putting all your trust and your faith and your righteous acts and righteous deeds. Jesus has talked about that numerous other places, but I don't think that's what's going on here because that wasn't part of the teaching of the Sadducees. Here's what I believe is going on in this passage. The Pharisees and Sadducees are most focused on maintaining their own power and authority. They want to stay in the driver's seat. They want to be in authority over Jesus. They want a Messiah that they could control, a Messiah that did what they said he should do when they said he should do it. The other problem that goes along with this is that it's very obvious they want proof of who Jesus is, but they have already determined in advance that it doesn't matter what he does, they will not believe in him. And Jesus warns the disciples against this self-centered, selfish, self-elevating kind of faith. It's a toxic faith that says, I'm in control. God has to do what I want. And what's sad is that I actually think we see indication that this is seeping into the disciples. Because when Jesus challenges them, they right away go to, what am I in control over? Well, we forgot to bring bread. We need to fix that. You see, they were looking at the situation instead of looking at Jesus. That's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing. They were looking at their power, their control, instead of trusting in Jesus. And we have to go back to the Canaanite woman that said, Jesus, I will take whatever you give me, even if it's just the crumbs from your table, I will take that. And we go back to the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The toxic faith that's going on here, the yeast that is spreading, is this idea that we are the most important thing in the world. We are the judges. We are the jury. And God has to meet up to our standard. And the underlying text is, even if he does, we probably still won't believe in him. 
And through it all, we take our focus off of Jesus and we put it on ourselves. And Jesus warns his disciples, beware. Beware of this thinking that will spread. Beware of this sort of toxic faith that is all around you that could creep into your own soul. Toxic faith puts us at the center instead of Jesus. Toxic faith keeps us on the throne instead of Jesus. Toxic faith sees us as the authority in the world instead of Jesus. We see this toxic faith in the struggles of the disciples. If you studied early church history at all, you'll see it there. We see its effect all throughout church history, and we still see it in churches and among believers today. Today is Palm Sunday. Picture that, Son of God, riding triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem, People laying down these palm branches declaring, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's one of the high points of the gospel from a human perspective. And yet I think in many ways, Palm Sunday is one of the saddest things that ever happened in the life of Jesus Christ. These crowds cheered that here was their Messiah. And they expected that he would do exactly what they wanted. And when he didn't, and it was clear that he wouldn't, and it was clear that he was going to die, they gave up on him. That's toxic faith. Next week on Easter morning, we will look at that question, who do you say I am? And we have to ask ourselves, am I going to trust Jesus for who he is? Am I going to trust what he says about himself and what he has clearly done and that scripture records? Am I going to trust in that and submit to who he is? Or am I going to be like the Pharisees and Sadducees who would only trust Jesus if he did what they said? Friends, we must not allow the spread of toxic faith that says we're in authority over Christ rather than in humble and desperate dependence on Christ. Christ. We need to keep our focus on Jesus, not ourselves. Our highest priority must be the glory of God, not our own good. We must listen to scripture, not man-made ideas. And we must declare as Christians the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just a better, happier way to live. That's toxic. The word of God is like an ultraviolet light that shines into our life. It's why so many people don't want to read the Bible. It's why a lot of churches, frankly, have quit preaching the Bible because people don't want to hear it. And I get it. It's a struggle. It's an ultraviolet light that shines into our life and it shows where this toxic faith has touched us and seeped in. And rather than doing something about the infection, it's easier to just shut off the light and put it away. We need to allow the word to show us where this toxic faith has spread. Because we do have something that we need to spread in this world. 
We've got the good news of Jesus Christ that needs to go to everyone and to the ends of the earth. The truth that we are completely dependent on Christ, that Jesus is our ultimate judge, but he's also our savior that died on the cross in our place. The truth that there is eternal life in him through the power of his resurrection. The truth that we are called to follow Christ, to trust him and to listen to him. That, that truth needs to spread in this world. And toxic faith detracts from the true faith about Jesus Christ. Let's be careful. Let's stop the spread of toxic faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would examine our own hearts. It's so easy in passages like this to look at the religious leaders and even the disciples and say, how foolish they are. How could they not see this? How could they buy into these things? But God, it's always easier to judge someone else's heart than our own. And the point of these things being recorded in Scripture is not to make fun of someone else or to judge them, but so that we might, through the power of your Spirit, ask ourselves, how are we the same? How do we struggle with the same things? Father, I pray that each one of us would be willing to submit to the illuminating power of your Word shining into our lives even if it means we're going to see things we don't want to see. But we know when we see those areas of infection, we have the great healer of Jesus Christ, the great Savior who died on the cross, who rose from the grave. And Father, next week we will celebrate those two truths on Good Friday and then on Easter morning. And I pray we would be able to answer that question, who do we say Jesus is? with an immediate response. He is my Lord and my Savior. And I am alive because of him. We pray this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.